Hello, and welcome to Book Club on Unsafe Space. My name is Carrie Smith, uh, one of the hosts, and I'm joined by Carter Laren and a fun group of people. What? <laughs> I have to make a new intro. That I, I, that intro is so weird. I have to make a new book club intro. I love that <laughs> intro. That's our oh, really? school intro. Well, there was the other one that you had me make that I liked that had the guy from uh, Lost. Lost, yeah. I don't know. I don't know where that is. I looked for it on my hard drive the other day. I couldn't find it. It's it's when oh. they kick uh, when they're like, I guess somebody's been kicked out of book club. Book club, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome everybody. I see who's that wearing the Santa hat. It's Joe. Hi, Joe. Hi. I'm happy. I'm happy you. I thought I thought Carter would be wearing his Santa hat today. Oh, I can. Here, I'll go get it. Yeah, go get I it. I have to steal it from the skeleton. So if it's your first time joining us for this live book club, this is something we do every month um, in Safe Space. It's free to join and participate. This month we did nonfiction, and we read Black Rednecks and White Liberals by Thomas Sowell. Um, we had a lot of people were in this video discussion this time, so we might have a couple of people joining late as well. And if you're just in the chat today, welcome. Sometimes with book club, it gets so heated, we don't see what you're saying in the chat, but I'm going to try and pay attention today. Carter, I love your hat. It's, it's much bigger it's, than those. It's yeah. from the knitters. It's awesome. It's a knitter hat. Size matters, Joe. Yeah. yeah. I was about to say. Size matters. The size of that Christmas. So uh, welcome. If it's your first time also on video, just we want to remind you, uh, usually we just kind of go around and everybody shares their initial impressions of the book. And then organically, we just kind of get into discussion of some of the finer points. It, when you're not talking, if you would mute yourself, just so we don't pick up any background noise, that would be great. And uh, without further ado, what did you think of this book, Carter? I really enjoyed it. Uh, I mean, I like Thomas Sowell anyway. Uh, so I was not like I went in expecting to not enjoy it, but um it was, I mean, I'll probably have to read it again because I listened to the audio version, which was great. But there were several times when I was like, I wish I could make a mark in this and like come back to this page and look at this again. Uh, my The thing I liked most about it was just the chalk full of facts. It was just the, the, just the, the story. So much information I just didn't know. Um, so I liked it. Yeah. I, I loved it. I I didn't realize it was going to be different essays and that just the first essay was black rednecks and white liberals. And so that was really surprising that he touched on so many different things. And I liked, I liked the essay format. He always did a helpful kind of, he broke things down. So it's easy to follow, even though it's dense with facts. And then at the end, I like it when somebody gives me a summary, it's like summary. Thank you. <laughs> just in case you missed any of this, let me underline it for you, you know? What, what did everybody else think? Alex, I know you have an opinion, so I let loved it out. It. I loved it so much. I I mean, this is my second Thomas Sowell book uh, ever, and second one this year, actually. First one was A Conflict of Visions, but this one I loved even more. Like, I like A Conflict of Visions, but this is so good. And uh, I was bugging everybody around me, like, reading parts of it and telling them parts of it and I posted quotes of it on my Instagram. I was obsessed the whole time and I did the audiobook and the ebook 
same time and I would take like screenshots whenever like I ran into a part that I was like, this is amazing. And I, yeah, I, one of the stories I told someone was the one about the, the, the steamboat race. <laughs> and, uh, and then he told someone else, cause it's just such an interesting story. And I, I just, I thought it was just amazing the whole way through. Any other comments? Did anyone not like it? Um, I liked it. I I wasn't blown away by it. Um, I'll tell you a couple reasons. One reason was because, uh, and, and now let me just say, it's not that I don't believe, like, Thomas Sowell is, like, not extremely well-researched or anything. But I didn't feel the book... Like his conclusions, I didn't feel were well um, evidenced that much. Like, like it felt like sometimes he could have been cherry picking. I'm not saying that's what he was doing. I, I, I understand he was writing a book that we, he was trying to make it readable by the masses. But I didn't feel like, like all the evidence he gave was like, you know, it was like so easy to, um, and this is this is really. This is like my criticism. I did like the book. I thought like he had some like, in fact, one of the notes in the book I wrote was at one point was, I wrote, my note was actually literally something like, yes, slay queen. Like that was my note on what he said, right? Like he's, he some of the stuff, and, and it's just his, some of his conclusions, I didn't feel, you know, I felt they were almost like, yeah, you could say that from that evidence, but I need to see more evidence. I need to hear counter evidence i would need it wasn't um granular enough evidence for me um again i'm not saying that i disagree with anything he said i'm not saying i you know, you're allowed uh, to disagree you're even allowed to not like it at all if you want to no i do like it i did like it <laughs> and the, more, now, the other thing I, the other thing that bothered me was like was like sometimes it was just hard for me to figure out what his main point was like it felt like he was going like, like he was going from, uh, this is my first solo book. It felt like he was going from point to point. Now I don't want to be the guy who says I didn't like the book because I did like the book. I, and uh, I just, you know, it was like it was just hard for me to stick to it because I couldn't, I, I couldn't find like his thread, the common thread going through it. Oh, um, could I jump in? I think that if I, that's a good question. If, if people want to say what they thought the common thread was, because maybe there were people like me who didn't realize these were going to be different essays. But I didn't there, realize if, that. Yeah. Right. I if there was that. one common thread, though, I thought he did a great job of presenting some commonly accepted beliefs and then explaining why they're wrong or, or making the case that they're wrong and, and saying, well, maybe we don't know what causes X, Y, Z, but I'm gonna show you why what we believe is wrong. So with the first essay, for example, um, uh, challenging the notion that there that certain things that have become associated as part of black culture had anything to do with African peoples. You know, that, that he, was, he was challenging that notion and trying to make the case, well, these things actually came from what he calls cracker culture and specific immigrants from parts of England and Ireland and Scotland at a certain time period, you know, and then, and then moving on, you know, uh, this, what was the second essay? 
one of the essays about middlemen, about, about, you know, he was challenging the notion that there was that, that anti-Semitism, um, though it, though it specifically targeted Jews, that it, that, that kind of hatred for a group was somehow unique, that, that, that that's a phenomenon that's happened with many middle, middle, what he calls middlemen groups throughout history in different parts of the world. And I think, I think by doing that, he, he was sort of highlighting in every essay, quit thinking that these things are unique. They're scattered throughout history. And it's, a, it's dangerous to accept these beliefs that, you know, that, that are incorrect. I don't, I don't know if I articulated that well. What did Carter, what were you going to say? I felt like jump in, but I felt like the whole book, every part of it, is trying to fight against ethnocentric beliefs about racism. That's what the whole thing is about. So, like, and that's what every one of those sections like attacked, like our ideas of slavery, our ideas of uh, Afro-American culture, our ideas about anti-Semitism, like everything is related to how we are raised to think about race in America and how most of that is crap when you take a broader view of history and the world. And so I I, I felt like everything equated it back to those sections, like including the idea that Germans were uh, worse than everybody else. That wasn't true. There's that's that's never been the case. And I feel like this was a very helpful book for understanding how humanity is the same the world over and throughout history. And uh, America's ideas of being weird or specific when it comes to these subjects are just blatantly false. Um, yeah, I, I, agree, I agree with that. Um, in fact, I really love the chapter on slavery um, I thought that was extremely well argued. Um, but like, like my problem might be with something like, um, uh, uh, I, I don't even know, like, um, you know, uh, I'm Jewish, so I'm very close to, uh, my, my grandparents are survivors. Um, uh, so I, I'm, uh, you know, fairly well versed in, uh, more than most people about, uh, the times of them. I thought he got a lot of that right. Um, I thought his main point about how um, a Hitler can rise in any civilization, like once he said that, that like sort of tied everything together. And I thought that was very accurate I'm, um, based on what I know. Uh, just, uh, I know that a lot of Jews lived in Germany after the war for quite a while because the Germans um, were, uh, the German people afterwards, they were like, sort of like shocked it was like they woke up from a some sort of like blackout or something like they were shocked a lot of them like what happened on their watch um whereas in some other countries uh it wasn't like that and jews were still whatever but i won't get into that because that's off topic uh but uh you know like when he talks about i don't know black education in the dunbar school and and all that stuff um and the black colleges like, I don't know enough about this stuff, right? So it, my, my problem is, maybe it's just me, I find it very hard. Like, if I, I agree with him, but if I was to argue with someone who disagreed, I, would, I, don't know, I wouldn't know how to do it from reading this book. I don't think I have the, the data or evidence to say, like, oh, and 
in the north, blacks were living with whites in the same neighborhood until the southern migration. Like, you know, that's, uh, he, he, I looked it up. It's from W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, that's who we quoted on Philadelphia. He wrote up something called the Philadelphia, I don't know if I can say the word. It's the, it's the N-word, but not the disparaging one. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I could say that on here, but, uh, nuance. Uh, and, you uh, can. Yeah. um, well, you guys know what it is anyhow, but, uh, I'll say it next time. But I mean, I want to look that up, but it's like a 500 page essay by W.D. Dubois. And I'm like, I'm going to read this book and make it for book club. So <laughs> I can look it up. Anyhow, like, you know, I don't know if I can formulate my thoughts that well, but Oh, I'm going to let everyone else speak because I spoke too much already. So go ahead. I don't, I mean, I don't think you spoke too much. I, I, I get your sentiment. I think for me, this book was so chock full of facts or inf information. I'll just say that um, it would have been impossible to really give a thorough argument for any one of the particular things. I think he did a good job on slavery, on challenging the notion or kind of the current narrative of, of inner city black culture now, and also slavery being the cause of things. Um, and so I think he's definitely provided a lot of information there, but for some of the stuff, like you just mentioned education and, um, and even some of the stuff about Germany, like I do think Hitler could rise anywhere. Uh, but, but the, there's a lot more information there. Like I couldn't make arguments that, oh, we know for certain that this is what's true in black schools and how to do blah, blah, blah. Like I, I don't know. I don't know that we know like that wasn't enough information there, but it was enough information to question current narratives. And I think that's his point. I don't think in many of these cases was to make a conclusive argument for what the truth is with respect to this, but instead to to make a conclusive argument that, what you think is the truth is incomplete at best and probably wrong. Yeah, I agree with Carter that the, the book doesn't give you how to formulaically refute the narrative, but it, it gives you a direction to, to look, to see, and just another perspective that <clears throat> the narrative isn't the only one out there. Uh, I really enjoyed the book. My first Thomas Sowell book was Basic Economics. I took an undergrad economics class and I didn't understand it. They made it almost hard. And then I read his book and he just took something that was made so complicated and simplified it down to something I can understand. And I think that's what he does with a lot of these top, with a lot of his books. He takes complex things and, and just makes them like Carter said, facts or information and makes it accessible to everyone. Hey. Other thoughts from someone else? Yeah, sorry, I'm late. I actually got my time mixed up. Um, and I was really eager to hear Carter's opening statements because um, I always think of the manner in which Thomas Sowell thinks and writes is um, would be somewhat up your alley. And I was, I was always curious to hear, to hear what you thought about um, any of his books. I don't even know how many of them if you read them or not. Car Carter hated this one more than screw tape letters. Okay. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I really like Thomas Sowell. Uh, Basic Economics is an awesome book. I recommend that everyone, everyone in high school read it. Um, right. And I like this. If you want to talk about the, his thought process, 
I'll say something I really appreciated and something that I think he's wrong about thought process wise. Um, something I really appreciated was his distinction between belief um, and morality. Belief being uh, something can be true or not. Like a belief can be false or true, but not morally or immoral. Um, and he, the way he described it was, uh, I think the purpose that the belief is used for or whatever, I would probably just say applied to action. It's the action that can be moral or immoral. So um, your beliefs could be true or false, but your actions are applied to morality. But I, he, he didn't use exactly the language I would have used, but I think that distinction is super important to make. And I'm glad he paused to make that distinction. Um, something I think he got wrong, uh, which won't surprise anyone who knows what I think about principles. Um, he treat, he created a false dichotomy with respect to um, abolition of slavery as if on the one hand you could apply principles that were completely impractical or on the other hand, you could do these practical things and abandon principle. And this is kind of the, um, th this is kind of that pragmatic philosophy seeping in of this idea that principles uh, aren't something that work in reality. And I think the error that he made, which is very common, is that uh, principles are in a hierarchy, just like concepts. And so you can't take a lower level principle and apply it universally without checking to see if a higher level principle would be violated. And so all these cases where we're like, well, what's the right thing to do if you're Thomas Jefferson or George Washington and you have slaves? It's like, well, you are also in a conversive, uh, a coercive environment. You are there's a law against you and you're being threatened by force. And like, there's a whole bunch of complex issues here that someone that says, Oh, on principle, we should just do X on principle can tell you slavery is wrong. It doesn't tell you how to solve it in the current context. Um, and so his, his representation that Garrison was too principled, I think is, is throwing principles under the bus in a way that's long-term detrimental. Um, so that I didn't like that. That was his characterization, but he was right that, that there was a context to consider. And that's true. Yeah. I've never heard that critique. And that makes a lot of sense. Cause I, I definitely agree with the idea that, um, you can recognize a principle and then, especially when it came to his example of slavery, but I always thought when people said, well, on principle, you should just free everybody. I always thought, okay, free to do what? You're illiterate, you have no culture of your own, you're poor, you have no means to do what it is other people are doing. You might be 85 years old. Um, so there's a responsibility as well once you've taken people into that type of relationship. Um, yes. But I understand exactly what you're saying, I think, to where it's not that the principle itself is incorrect or that it's wrong to have that principle but the manner in which you apply it is a different argument compared to what the principle itself is. And it does depend on context, right? And here's an obvious example that he had in the book. Uh, he, it wasn't this clear, but this was the case for one of someone. He'd inherited slaves and it was literally illegal for him to free the slaves. So, okay, well, I have a gun to my head telling me it's illegal to do this thing, which like I have force threatened against me. And I, I know that the right thing to do is to free someone, but I'll get like, I'm not in the moral obligation to take a bullet because someone else is pointing a gun. Right. So then, then the complex question comes like, okay, well, what's the right way to do it? How do we get away with it? Maybe it is doing what a lot of these uh, people supposedly did, which is kind of sit down with them and say, well, you're free 
but not technically like to protect us both from from being in trouble we'll we'll officially say that you're still a slave but you're actually i'm not gonna you know <laughs> i'm not gonna actually enforce that because that's immoral like th- those are some nuances that uh i think aren't unprincipled at all uh they just right you know everything has a context and principles are in a hierarchy and the and the, the higher all of the reason slavery is wrong is because of individual sovereignty. So when in your situation where someone else's individual sovereignty is being violated, it's like, well, you don't, you're not forced to have to apply it in one way over here while it's being violated over here. Like that's a more complex situation and it's completely legitimate to figure out what's the right way to do this here. Not just blanketly say we have to do X. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And, um, I've heard a couple of comments when I came on about, you know, the book and being able to utilize those arguments with other arguments you might have outside of this realm. Um, and I think it's important to remember that technically black rednecks and white liberals is a collection of essays on these different topics. And the real meat of all the, that information comes from a lot of other research. So just on the, um, like the black redneck idea, that's a part of a cultural study that he did while traveling around the world two times and writing at least three books on culture and conquest, race and culture, and one about disease and how that affects um, the culture. So if you ever read like uh, Guns and Guns, Germs and Steel, yep, very similar it. to that, but he takes that further in an international perspective. And I think these are meant to be distillations of some of those concepts in an answer to some of the um, narratives that we see all the time that just don't make sense. Yep. He's dispelling those narratives. That was was my comment. Um, And I, I actually said what you said. I said, he probably researched and wrote and whatever. I said, but this book itself didn't convince me of his conclusions. It just made them like, yeah, they're valid hypotheses, probably. Um, but you, you know, I, I I just like I just like the the granularity more. But um, that's just my expectations. I'm not saying the book is not a good book. It, it's just better not. Book. It's my hero. <laughs> <laughs> what about? No, I, um, I think yeah, it's brilliant. Right, right. That's it. Yeah. What about uh, Manny or Keith or Zato? Do you do you guys have thoughts? Yeah. Or Jeff? so, I really like the book a lot too. It's very thought thought provoking, like you were saying, and um, made you realize that history that sometimes we're taught or the ideology that you see prevalent today um, is just a narrative that maybe doesn't look at history in reality. It's not looking at what really how things were before. Like when he's talking about slavery, how throughout the human histories, there was slavery all over the place. And there still is in some places, unfortunately, right? And uh, Hillary brought it back, I think, actually, when she and when she had Libya collapsed. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was very enlightening in that respect. And and you know, you you think about those things and so you realize that we have evolved and a lot of things that have happened and how as a humanity we learn. And the idea is that the great ideas that that come over time, hopefully, uh, you know, like he was arguing that the West was the one that led the, the abolishing abolishment of slavery, right? 
where they tried to have it implemented all over the place and uh, what came from that. But that type of knowledge, there's a lot of people that don't know. They don't they don't understand it or they, they just think that what they're hearing now is is that's the only truth. So it's very important to get educated about what has happened in the past and how we we can make things better. The other thing, this is another something that I thought about after reading the book. You know, he he was he was making the argument that sometimes people think that or there was the idea that let's say for example black black students at a certain time they were they weren't able to learn as well or be as as uh, you know proficient at different things as other people as other students that were white for example and uh, how that is obviously or that is not true right and you know i i definitely believe that i think that um we're all human we all bleed red what really happens is we have to challenge ourselves not to say that people are not challenging themselves but those who succeed are the ones who actually try hard and try to do the difficult things and obviously there's been times a lot of times in the past where some groups of people have had a lot more challenges than other than others right depending on where how you were born what group you were born as part of but those who 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 make it and and improve their situation is because they've really tried they want to do it and you see a lot of examples all over the place of that and i think that's what we should focus on as as human beings right because you can see those who excel and do better in life are the ones who actually try. If you start with the idea that you can't because you have some sort of, you know, incapability or you're repressed or whatever it is, then you just sit and don't do anything and, and don't try as hard and then you don't advance. But that's sort of a comment and a tangent of some of the things I was thinking after reading that book. Yeah, the, black, the black education chapter in particular you're making me think of that one, you know, and that poem uh, that Dunbar, it was written by Dunbar, who the, the black school was named for. Keep plugging away. Perseverance still is king. Time, it's sure reward will bring work and wait unwearying. Keep plugging away. And I think he's right that if you, that sentiment, when you, when anyone shows that today, the idea of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that's derided. The idea of keep persevering. It's mocked, yeah. It's mocked and, yeah. and it's outright rejected. There seems to be an assault on perseverance and hard work. <laughs> yeah. Trying harder. It's like the, the culture or the, the, hey, everybody gets a trophy award. You know, like you're, you're not, uh, you're not uh, rewarding people for, for challenging themselves and trying harder, right? It reminded me a little bit of what John F. Kennedy said back then when he had one of those quotes that said, we, we choose to do this because it's hard, right? We choose to do this because it's hard. And because it's hard and we, you know, if you look at what happened, I mean, we were able to get to the moon at that time because we challenged ourselves that, you know, the, that, that is what we all should do. If we all, if if you think that you're you're not able to do something, you're not gonna, and then you're not gonna try, and then you're never gonna be able to do anything, right? So, but 
Yeah, that, that education one, one of my favorite parts of that, um, I think it was in this book, but he's read a couple of articles as well about Dunbar in particular. But at the time that Brown versus the Board of Education, the um, case was going through, they decided that separate cannot be equal. Maybe three or four blocks down the street at that time, not only was separate not equal, but separate was actually better and because the black high school was doing better than most of the white schools in the neighborhood. So you have this courtroom on this street saying that, oh, you can't have separate black high schools because they're inherently less than the white high schools. Oh, we'll go three blocks down the street right here. And these black kids are scoring higher than a lot of the white kids that while you're trying this case, you know, and then that, that list of people who came out of Dunbar, who created Dunbar and they came out of Dunbar, it was just amazingly insane. And it, you, we just never hear about things. I've never heard anyone else talk about this and lay down so many facts. And that's one of the things I love about reading Thomas Sowell. And it could be hard, like Carter said, it's uh, really dense because he'll say, okay, it's like going to court where someone says, well, here's my, my thesis. And Thomas Sowell says, okay, well, let's test that. And then he comes back a week later and the, he drops a stack of just information that says, well, if that was true, then A, B, and C would be true, but that's not. Here is A through Z and then one through a million of other things that have actually happened that are documented opposite of what you're saying. And I think that's why we don't hear about Thomas Sowell that much is because, um, like was said earlier, if you want to challenge what he's saying, it's going to take you five years of research just to scratch the surface of the things that he's already put into this pile of facts that are opposite your narrative. You just have to ignore him and pretend he doesn't exist. Yeah, because he's really good at mining reality to show like that bad ideas are bad, right? Instead of just yeah. saying this is a bad idea and here's why it's bad on principle, blah, blah, blah. He does the work to go like, I'm going to go mine for all the examples of why that's wrong. Here they are. And then you've got like the stack, like they're saying, it's like, well, that's no one wants to deal with that. <laughs> no, you know, but thank God that he's done it for us. Yeah. Well, one of the no, things I like about it. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, just what we were talking about just now is that he was, yeah, he tears apart those narratives, but he also gives you new ideas to think about. He doesn't say replace this narrative with this other one. And this is the, the true narrative like he actually gives a couple different uh possibilities to think about uh, which i thought was was really nice um and it it did make me think um i hadn't considered some of the i hadn't heard some of the stuff he was referring to with dunbar and all the the history there and um it, it was it was a little bit overwhelming at times and i it i did i did the audio version so i'm like doing chores and stuff. And often I found I would have to rewind. He's like, oh, wait, what did he just say? And I, I had to go back and listen to it again because um, he made some really good points that I'd never heard. So I enjoyed it. thought it was full of information. Yeah, like that, that line about a Japanese baby being born and already having grievances against the white baby who was born in the uh, room next to them, you know, is that the kind of world we want to live in? And how, you know, that's one of those things where he distills it down into saying, this is actually what you're saying. You're saying this baby over here because they're Japanese 
has grievances against this white baby that's born in the same hospital on the same day. So you're already pre-filling them with all of these things that they're going to have to fight over. And when you think about the reality of that, it's just so stupid. I mean, how, if you still want to go down that road, you're going to have to keep that in your mind and remember just how dumb it is. Uh, can um, we talk about quick since it, along those lines about uh, you know going going back to that black education chapter? Just how much while reading it, how much I was thinking it's gotten so much worse since he wrote this. And the, first first of all, the condescension, the condescension towards black people and black children. One of his sentences was uh, the quest for esoteric methods of trying to educate black children proceeds as if such children had never been successfully educated before. Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> yes. I feel like all of the conversation today is about how black kids just can't, they can't, they can't keep up. We need to get rid of every measure of success. We need to get rid of Harvard's getting rid of SAT scores now. They're no longer gonna be looking at SAT scores to get into Harvard. It, it, it's just this disgusting, racist, condescending belief that, that society seems to have accepted. Um, and a lot of it, I think, is, is made possible by the fact that people just don't know this history isn't taught. I didn't know about the Dunbar School. Um, but I think it's gotten even so much worse since he wrote this essay. I'm not sure when he wrote that one. Um, he, one thing I like that he did here was he, um, he definitely explained or I'm not saying proved, but he definitely explained and suggested why the false narratives, like who's, who's served by the false narratives and what the purpose of the false narratives is. Um, so that you can see like, Oh, why aren't they talking about this? Oh, because it would destroy X, Y, and Z. Like they, they don't actually care about any of the things they say they're caring about. They're using the black population in order to achieve some other goal. And it becomes very clear when you understand their unwillingness to engage with some of the stuff that he brings up. Can I just read one of the things I highlighted in the book that I love? Um, I'll take that as a yes. Uh, the school taught things like grammar and composition, which are considered passe in educational circles but it achieved success, which is also passe in too many public schools today. I was like, that was the line where I wrote, slay queen, like I was like, yeah. oh my God. <laughs> There's a lot like that in that essay. <laughs> one, of my, one of the lines I underlined, I'll just read, uh, I don't know what essay it was in. It's in the black education section, but it says, work seems to be the only four letter word that cannot be used in public today. I love, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so true because they literally get angry at you. If you suggest that any part of success has something to do with, or, or lack of success has something to do with choices that the person not succeeding is making or not making. And I think he did do a good job uh, by citing other examples of, of blacks from West, the West Indies, um, other cultures uh, coming in and succeeding. As Thomas is saying, we're doing this, like, <laughs> say, what do you say, Thomas? Uh, oh, <laughs> there you go, right? Yeah. He's talking about, like, how it's not, this isn't, uh, this this debunks this myth that there's racism is preventing all this or that poverty is preventing it, right? 
Yeah, he, there's a line he has, um, I'm not sure if it's here, but um, something to the effect of why do we study poverty? Poverty is the natural situation of mankind. What we should be studying is success. Um, and every after I heard that and it rattled around in my head for a while, I started looking at everything so differently. I, I think even Jordan Peterson has uh, said something like that, where he says, why do we try to find, figure out why people are anxious and have anxiety? We should be anxious. Things are out there trying to kill us every day. The world's tough. We should be figuring out why people who aren't anxious aren't anxious. So it kind of shifts that whole paradigm into thinking that it's almost, now that I'm saying it out loud, um, it almost seems the opposite of Rousseauian, where people assume that everything should be gentle and soft in the, in the natural sense, where it's like, no, nothing is gentle and soft and easy. The tough part of life and the difficulty is the norm and has been for all of humanity. We just happen to be lucky, lucky enough to be living at a time when we find that to be surprising. Oh, my God, you had to work hard? Well, why is that? Oh, my God, what the happened to them? You know, it, it's like that's not that's not abnormal. Most of uh, life has always been, you know, one of the stats was like it, 70, 75% of all children died before the age of five. Um, that was in the 1700s. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, you know, yeah. we're living in It's the total opposite now. So it really helped to shift my paradigm and how I think about a lot of that stuff. He, I think he said this, I don't, was it him? But I think it was, I think it was him that said this broadly about, uh, this was his one of, one of his critiques of socialists generally and anti-capitalists where they were running around saying things like, Hey, why are these people poor? Why are these people oppressed or whatever? And I, I think it was Tom the that was like, what do you mean? Look at history. They're poor and oppressed because that's how people are. They're poor and oppressed. The question is, why do we have this country that's less poor? And less oppressed. What the hell did they do? Because that's the aberration. That's the weird thing. Yeah, just like the slavery was the norm, abolishing yeah. slavery was the peculiar thing. It's not like America was, you know, there were some things that were peculiar about the way that America did slavery as compared to other places. But slavery as an institution is not what we should be trying to figure out how that happened. We should figure out how we got rid of it, because that's what makes it things different, not the fact that it existed. I also, in that in that slavery chapter, I like that he pointed out, or made the case anyway, that slavery didn't arise from racism, that racism arose from slavery. And after he explained it, I mean, I, I thought, of course, but then I realized I'd never thought that before. I'd never had that thought before that I just kind of I think baked into the false narrative about slavery in the throughout history and in the world they're selling us many things some of those things I've discarded in recent years like the idea that it's this uh uniquely western thing and that it's a that white people are uniquely evil and those things I've already discarded but I didn't realize I still had that belief that that slavery is born out of racism instead of the other way around yeah, all the way back to antiquity, slavery, you could just be in the wrong place at the wrong time and somebody comes in and conquers your your territory and you're a slave now all of a sudden. It didn't matter what race you were, what religion or anything. It had nothing to do with it. It was the fact that mortality was low. They needed labor because in order to farm and provide and do all this, 
they had somebody help them do that. And that so it had nothing to do with race. Yeah. Something that Soul did a lot throughout the book is explain how people's argumentation was reversed. Like he does that a lot. Like he goes into like how people mix up uh, cause and effect like all the time. And that's one of the ways he does it. And basically it's because, and he doesn't say this, although he does explain it. He talks about the whole, it's illegal to teach slaves to, to read, um, but they can't, they're incapable of reading. And it's like, well, then why don't we have it like an animal? And it's like, well, then why don't we have any laws that make it illegal to teach animals how to read? Because you don't, because you don't actually believe that. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that someone's not making these uh, beliefs to uh, actually you know, and then that leads to their uh, their actions. It's more like I need some beliefs to justify what I want to do, and that is what is actually going on. I there's one. I just want to throw this out while we're talking about slavery. I think it was Pirate Tomsky that sent me this. Sargon of Akkad has done a really excellent video about British the British. Uh, quest to end slavery i don't know where it is but if if beverly if you find it post it in chat or something but um if anyone's interested in just like if you don't want to read whole books about it or whatever and you just want like a 20 minute synopsis of from sargon which is you know good (laughs) because it's from sargon uh it's a good video to watch and you can get kind of get an understanding of how much the english did um both at home and around the world to end slavery um and it's something that I, I think, frankly, if we were in a rational world, would probably have if we wanted to have a day to commemorate any kind of thing in the history that's happened uh, with that that's affected uh, downtrodden people. It wouldn't be Indigenous Peoples Day or anything else. It would be let's pick a day and celebrate that the that the Western world spent resources, time, and energy running around destroying slavery, not just in the West but everywhere. Yeah, instead of creating a day that I, that celebrates a person based on their identity, celebrate a day that celebrates actions taken by human beings. Yeah, positive uh, actions that were that are historic, right? That's never happened, never happened before, right? Um, I have a question. If anyone can answer this, this is a genuine question. Um, uh, he talks about um, you know how there were black slave owners. Um, and then that sort of got me thinking, because he also mentions in the book, I don't remember where, that black, uh, like, like race was actually not in any of the laws concerning slavery. So then I was wondering, like, could white people be slaves legally? Like, why was it black people? I get they came from Africa and whatever. But if it's not, like, if I recall that they're not, it's nothing to do with inherently they're black, like the race arose from slavery, the racism arose from slavery. Could white people be slaves in America? Like, what was a slave? You know? Does anyone know the answer? There were white slaves in America in the 1500s and 1600s. Not as many. Um, Like, one place where there were quite a few was in New Orleans and and that part of the South. There were Irish were the common one. I still brought up, like, slavery is vulnerable people. Um, and, And white slaves are used 
generally for more like ship unloading, they tended to give them higher uh, tasks that required more instruction because most of the white slaves spoke English is the main reason. It isn't necessarily IQ or where they came from, but the, the white slaves that were Irish, Welsh, um, they got more, they could get more money for them. Uh, but they're really not so good at farming in the South because they can't take the sun. Like that's sort of, I mean, melanin is part of it really. Um, plus they're vulnerable. And as Sol brings up, it's like the people that were enslaved were vulnerable. North Africans enslaved a lot of Europeans in the 1400s, yeah. 1500s as galley slaves, you know, like so, Italians. And I, I think specifically with American legal system uh, and development. So, uh, yeah, that was my question. I think he specifically mentions um, that the first slaves, which may have been indentured servants in America, um, were actually not black. There were. Um, some some whites, I don't know if they were Irish or whatever, but I also remember something about the Irish were the ones that had to do the harder tasks as far as the more dangerous, not harder, but more dangerous tasks, because there was, for some reason, it was economically more beneficial to give it to the Irish, because if the Irish died, they weren't as much of an economic, um, I don't know, hardship as compared to a black slave, because black slaves were actually more expensive than Irish slaves at the time. There might have been a difference when they came to actually having indentured servitude, um, but I don't I don't remember the specifics, but I do, do remember that. So I think there was some overlap. Um, now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm starting to remember. It, there's also the issue of when you're black in America in that time, there's not as much, nearly as much mix. There's not as many people that look like me. And it's easier for someone who can escape to then later on blend in with the um, population at large, especially if they move on a little bit. But if I escape, you know, I can't just, you know, start talking with a hawk neck and no, I'm from Ireland. But don't worry, I'm here to work. You know, I just want to blend in. You know, that's not going to happen. You know, <laughs> even if I change my name to O'Neill. So I think there's the also that aspect of it where you can't just um you can't just get out of the population and i can't just get back to africa and be like you know i'm gone because there are situations where people who were enslaved by people who look kind of like them if you escape you can maybe even get back home that that wasn't the case here either yeah so i, I was asking legally obviously in, in real life you know the the physical differences you know sort of make it harder but uh, under American law, like in 1859, someone could own a white slave? Maybe. I mean, that's. I think it's a great question. I don't know for sure. But I think that the fact that some of those white slaves did exist tells us that, that, that it's it was at least possible. But, I mean, it's a good question. Oh. I, I so what Keith said was, was before the revolution. So it wasn't American law. It was British law. So... So it, it was anyhow, French. I think it was actually mostly French societies. Oh, maybe. I'm yeah. sorry. New Orleans. But, uh, but, uh, maybe we've taken this as far as we can, but this is what you guys are saying is interesting to me. I'll, I guess I'll look further. Well, I think Most, we know that the Constitution doesn't have, doesn't talk about blacks, right? The Constitution doesn't talk about race. Um, and so 
at least at the federal level, there's no there was no pro- prohibition on slavery, um, which seems redundant. If, but should should have been right, I guess, to make it explicit. And there was no mention of race. So at least at the federal level, it wasn't illegal. I, you have to go through well, each state. They could have mentioned slavery in 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 the you know on the papers because they they had to like formulate a union. So. Well, but the three-fifths rule, for example, doesn't say doesn't say black people. It says slaves, and it doesn't mention race, right? Yes. Yeah, I think they did I read actually that the three-fifths the three-fifths rule was uh, um, the North wanted it because the North wanted to diminish their congressional power of the South. The South wanted them to be five-fifths, like a whole person. Then they have more congressional power. The North wanted the slaves to be three-fifths. So saying like, Z- like that was a race they wanted them to be zero. Actually, I think they, they wanted, wanted to be zero. zero. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. But the three fifths was, was the a compromise. North. Yeah, it was because of the north. They went below a whole person. So that's sort of. But in the in the south, you know, free blacks were counted as a hundred percent for representation, um, and free blacks owned slaves. It wasn't even uncommon. Right. Yeah, that's one of those arguments I've had on social media with friends where they say, oh, yeah, then why are we three-fifths of a person? I said, well, it's not because of the fact that they think you literally were three-fifths of a human being. It was much more complicated than that. It's been to your point, the North wanted to do that because it gives, if, if we would have counted, and maybe this kind of goes back to what Carter says about principles and practicality. If the North would have gone and said, well, okay, you know what? Yes, you're correct. Um, you are a whole person, and we have to you have to count you for representation. Um, that would have been not something practical because then the South would have had a lot more votes and a lot more um, political power. Um, so it, 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 it's it's hard to say this out loud, but it's kind of like you're welcome because if we would have done that, we might have had a lot more other issues that would have come up that wouldn't have been in the long term beneficial to the goal of abolishing slavery or, or keeping the union together and then abolishing slavery. Because if we didn't keep the union together, we couldn't have had abolition of slavery. Not that we couldn't have had, but you know, it wouldn't have, if it happened, it wouldn't have happened in the way that it did. I feel Keith getting warm over here. <laughs> well, but, but before Keith jumps on that, I just want to point out something that like, it's, it's the, the disconnect here is, I, I think maybe, I don't know at the time, but you could imagine the North saying, fine, you can count all the slaves, but they're the ones who get to vote. Like what was happening here was that the slave owner gets all those votes, like the, essentially, it's not that they get all the votes, but like it gets counted for the population. So um, I, I think if the North had said, fine, you can have 100%, it can be a one-to-one correlation, but then slaves get to go to the ballot box, uh I'm pretty sure the South would have been against that <laughs> as well. So, you know, it, this is one of those examples where, like, the principle itself is, subbe- like, already you're not operating under this this principle. You're already, you've already usurped it. It's already denied. Um, you're already living in this world in which some people get to do this. Some people are owned by other people. So, and it, you can't really criticize the three-fifths compromise on moral grounds at that point because it's it's a it's a decision of, like, well, what can we get? It's a tactical decision. It's pragmatically. We have a moral goal. Our goal is, is to end slavery. Let's say that's the goal. What the right tactical decision is, is very hard to say. You can't blame someone for saying, I think three-fifths is the right thing, or I think we should never have compromised and, and done whatever. Like, eh, 
you don't know. I want to read Sol, what Sol said about the three priest compromise because it really drove, drives home what that accomplished. The talking point made today is that this political arrangement amounted to saying that a black man was only three fifths as important as a white man. But would those who say this have preferred that the slave population had been counted as requiring the same representation in Congress as the free? What would have been the consequences? Or do consequences matter to those trying to score points? Because if they had more representatives in the House for slave states, how much longer would slavery have existed? That's essentially what the Three-Fifths Compromise prevented. It, like, curtailed their power politically. And that was a good thing. And pretending as if that's not true is is just ignorance. It's purposeful, you know, point scoring. Willful blindness. Yes, willful blindness. I would call it lying. And by my definition, it's the attempt to gain a value through the through denial of truth or through their misrepresentation misrepresentation of truth. And like that's what it is. It's lying. If for anyone who knows, for for some you know, a normie who doesn't know, maybe they're just repeating arguments. I don't know. Most people I've heard use that argument have no idea where it came from or what the compromise is about. And when you explain it to them, from what I've seen, most people understand that. They're like, oh, I didn't know that. Since we're talking about this uh, slavery chapter, there was, I want to read one of the things that was interesting to me. It's where he's talking about how Catholicism and, and Christianity and, and Buddhism and, and clergy, they because slavery was so common in all of the world that these institutionalized religions had had also engaged in slavery and found ways to, as you were talking about Alex, like try and find beliefs to justify it and find things to work backwards and justify this belief. But then he's talking about how um, in the West, what was unique was that like Christians started engaging with this question of, of slavery in part because uh, what he called the Christian insurgents, religious minorities, who had separated from these these ancient historic um, uh, representations of the church or institutions of the church that they had started to grapple with it because they had already left the the historic institution of the church and so they were grappling with everything anew and so he was talking about religious minorities such as the Quakers or the evangelicals within the within the Anglican Church could not simply re- rely on religious tradition and authority because their very existence was based on questioning of in some cases breaking with those traditions and authorities. And so it goes on to detail, you know, how Quakers were the first religious group to find slavery morally intolerable, but that became a question of their own. It was about their own salvation and their souls. Like, could they be okay with this practice? And and uh, this was the the funny thing I wanted to read, if I can find it. It was it was basically, oh, I lost it because he said it earlier. But he basically said the people, some of the earliest abolitionists, some of the first people to push back for abolition, some of them were religious conservatives. And that made me laugh out loud because I was thinking of how religious conservatives are maligned today and they're presented by the narrative and by the mainstream as being somehow the religious conservatives would love to have slavery back and they're so racist and they're so this and, you know, and, and then I was, uh, did anybody else have the thought about like, 
all of these do-gooders in the in the woke world, for example, these people who like to think of themselves on the right side of history, if we were transplanted back to this time period, to the antebellum South, would they still would they be the people going along with the flow, with the narrative like they are today? I think they would be. I think they would still be the people, like the ones who try to claim all this righteousness today and, and pushing this um, woke belief system. I just try to imagine them back here. They wouldn't have, I don't, I don't see them as the religious conservatives or even like the atheist uh, abolitionists. I don't see them as those people. I see them as the people who just go with whatever's popular at the moment. That's what makes them normies by definition. Like no, they're, they're normies because yes, no matter where you put them in history, they would do whatever everyone else is doing. Like that's what, yes, they would go along. So that's, yeah, that's what makes them normies. Well, if I, I think that, fighting... that part. Go ahead, Keith. I was going to say, I think that part of the, the left, the, which is Democrats, not to get into parties, but they would have been Democrats in 1840s too, in the South. Yeah. They would have been voting for slavery. They would have been trying to push the Fugitive Slave Act. Yeah, they would have owned slaves. I don't care about Republican versus Democrat, but it's an interesting fact that there weren't any Republicans that owned slaves. That's, that's a Democrat thing. Always was. And so I think what you brought up, Carrie, it would have been true. I, I agree. Like in the South in 1850, those people would have been doing the same thing. They would have been going for the common narrative, which is black people should be slaves. So, so in the Bible you know, or something. Yeah, you notice thing. something about the, the slave, the, the, how slaves are discussed throughout history and and there's a parallel between i think he brings this up but there's a parallel between how they're treated throughout history and how they're treated by liberals today mod, like the modern left today um not classical liberals but like the modern left today which is this um as 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 if they need to be taken care of as if like their well-being and and you know they need in the in the past it was well they couldn't survive on their own. So slavery is good for them, right? Like they, they wouldn't know how to, they're, you know, they're too dumb to read. That's why we need laws that we can't teach them to read. And the slave, you know, slavery is really good for them because they couldn't survive on their own. So we have to take care of them and blah, blah, blah. And you fast forward to now and it's kind of the same argument. It's like, well, without affirmative action, they couldn't get into good schools. And without this, they couldn't do this. And without like, it's the same mentality. It's the exact same uh, paternalizing whites and um, infantilizing an entire population of non-whites. We touched on it earlier, but I like I like Sol's discussion of you trying to think in a twenty you know ten whenever he wrote that twenty oh five and think about what it was like in eighteen fifty. Like you, there's a lot of nuance there. You can't make that decision. And there's people that were. I, I was fascinated by his discussion of who the abolitionists were and some of the people that weren't abolitionists who actually wanted to end slavery, but they weren't abolitionists. Um, like one of the points he brought up is people that were, you know, second, third generation slaves living on a plantation. If you turn them loose in a free market, like they, they wouldn't survive. They didn't know how to survive. So even if you wanted to free your slaves, it's not necessarily the kindest thing to do to just give them a horse and turn them loose. Um, yeah, that reminds the, the, me. The, um, I just want to say quickly that uh, uh, I think there's a little more nuance there. Uh, based on what Sowell said uh, about abolitionists, um, I was I was actually, you know, I found it very interesting. A lot of the anti-abolitionists were also anti-slavery. Um, you know, the two were not exclusive. And 
Um, also, how you know today the word abolition is being brought back for you know like whatever they use slavery for in the woke movement. But I I, I think Carrie, you're correct about um, saying how they would be pro-slavery. But I also think they might also be abolitionists in the fact that they want utopian revolution. Um, you know, like end it now and and burn it all, you know, to the ground and rebuild, um, or actually not even rebuild. It will just happen naturally. Right? That's what they think. But uh, uh, yeah, so I found those uh, those are my two points. One, how I found it interesting about uh, abolitionists could all, uh, anti-abolitionists could also be anti-slavery. And the second thing was uh, I also think some of those. Uh, you know, our radicals today would be abolitionists, but that's because they want their utopian revolution. Um, and uh, that's, that's my point. Speaking yeah. on that whole thing about like, if someone, if you were back then, what would you do? I had someone, I had a teacher ask that question of the class when I was in high school. And I was like, this is the big, and we were specifically reading Huckleberry Finn and like, would you help Jim or would you turn him in? And I was like, there's so many things wrong with this fucking question. I can't even know where to begin. I never answered it. What I said was, first of all, that's only two choices. There's a third choice in that I don't do anything and just let him go on his way. <laughs> and then two, uh, there's, there's the fact that if I help him, they'll try to, and they catch me, they will kill me. And that is a, that is something I need to consider as Carter pointed out, the force implication and then, and i was like and thirdly i do not i did not grow up in that time period i have no idea who i would be so could you please not ask this kind of stupid question i rejected it i was 17 years old and i was like this is the dumbest question anyone has ever asked me in my entire life but this is how you apply modern stand this is a great way to get kids to apply modern standards to past uh to history right is by it seems innocuous and a lot of parents wouldn't notice it. It's like, oh, what would you do if you were this person? That seems like a nice interactive question. But if you think about it for a bit, you realize, oh, what I'm saying is, please import all of your 21st century values to 200 years ago and and tell me how tell me how everyone was wrong. It, you you will literally make a villain out of anyone you want by doing that. Well, and I think the fourth one I said was, uh, of course, every single one of your students is going to say they were going to help him because they're 20th century kids and they don't believe in slavery or racism. <laughs> so it's like, they're not going to say, oh, well, obviously I would turn them in. Who says that? No one would say that. But, but they don't know enough about themselves to realize that they oppose slavery because that's what is morally, that, that is accepted common wisdom today. And they don't know enough about themselves to truly have evaluated what they would have done if that wasn't, as 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 Joe says in private chat, the book Ordinary Men, which we read, which is a, you know about there's a history of people going with the flow, and so a hundred percent of the people in the class saying, I would have been the one person to do the right thing, and it's like they've never actually asked themselves, are they someone who just goes with the flow, and if they are, would they have gone with the flow back then, which was awful which was the opposite of, of being the one person to stand up. Yeah, I think the better question, especially for young people, would be why is slavery wrong? Because it's such a accepted thing. Oh, everyone knows it's wrong. Okay, explain why. Because when you start making someone explain why it's wrong, 
then they have to start laying down some principles and understand why and then ask them where those principles came from why do you think those things are you know and start getting them a foundation um but I, i've always thought about this and i never see like in the 1619 project or any any discussion about slavery and the history of it in, in america or anywhere nobody ever talks about why it's wrong in the first place i mean on the in that contingent um, but I think the reason is because if you get down to why slavery is wrong, you have to get down to principles like individual sovereignty, individualism, um, reason, and all those kind of things that the roots of their whole philosophy are against. So they wouldn't even ask that question in the first place. Yeah, because for them, actually, I think a lot of the postmodernists have reintroduced the um, – you know, we were talking about how slavery was the norm in ancient times. I think maybe Joe mentioned it in ancient times, right? Where, uh, you know, you go, you go defeat Troy, you take Cassandra and other people as slaves. Like that's just what happened. It has nothing to do with their, uh, nothing to do with their race or anything else. You, you know, it doesn't matter. You go defeat someone, you take their, you take their people as slaves. Um, and the world was very tribal back then. Right. Uh, in the sense of, you know, you had your little you might have had alliances with other cities. But generally, if you wanted to raid a city and kill people and take slaves, there was no moral. Uh, there's nothing there's no moral imperative to not do that. It was like, well, you know, did you sacrifice to the gods properly and, you know, whatever? And is it practical? Like, OK, that was it. That was the consideration. And I think I think what's happened with the modern we can say not just postmodernists, the critical theorists, whatever, but the kind of the modern state of the philosophy that underlines woke ideology is, has reintroduced this. So slavery actually isn't wrong to them. What they're angry about is they, they want to, they're trying to conquer the West and the, the weapon that they can use is guilt. And so that's, that's basically all it is. Right. And so you can say, oh, the West did these things which are bad. And every normal person goes, oh, yes, that was horrible. That's that's really bad. OK, great. Now we'll do I think Thomas Sowell introduced this concept, which I loved. I think I don't exactly remember the term. Maybe you do, Thomas, but it was uh, something about like spanning over time. There was a concept of a, a concept over time, like intertemporal or whatever. Right. But it was this collectivism that was like intertemp, like a temporal intertemporal collectivism. Cosmic. So. No, no, he, he used the, like the word, te the, the Latin root of temporal was in there somewhere. I don't remember, but it, it was this idea that you are not just a member of your collective that you are now, but you're part of this collective throughout history. If you're white, you're part of the white people and that's it. That spans time. And so stuff that they did, you are, you should feel responsible for. Um, but I really think they're just reintroducing, they're literally throwing out any of the universalism and the principles that, uh, built the, I mean, one of the enlightenment, one of the key points of the enlightenment was universal principles, right? Applied universally, right? So they're throwing that out intentionally because they're trying to destroy, it's an anti-enlightenment, uh, goal. So they're trying to destroy that and they want tribalism. They want groups fighting each other. And the only reason they even use the word slavery is because it once they've convinced whites that they're guilty for the sin of people that had similar melanin content 200 years ago, uh, it, they can get them to behave in ways that they want if they use the word slavery. Yeah, they don't have principles. They have goals. 
Right. And if someone went to define slavery, that would threaten them because defining slavery undermines their goal, as you're saying. Like, it, like, oh, crap, we have to reinvent the Enlightenment if we start asking those questions. That's a right. bad idea. If you try to if push also, the argument the way Thomas is talking, it's like you, you get down to principles. And so if you make them defend their their objection to slavery based on principles, it totally falls apart. You, you could say something like, well, how about if half the slaves are white? Would that be okay? Or, or maybe, it, how about if all the slaves are white and the only people that own slaves are black? Would you Slave object to slavery? Equity, and they're like, that's all we need. Slave not, equity. Maybe not. <laughs> It, it, it falls apart because it's not based well, on Keith, principle. Well, slavery is slavery plus power. You don't understand. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> you can't, it's black people really can't slavery. be slave owners because they have not historically had systemic power. <laughs> Even if they are owning you and you're a slave, it's not slavery because they don't have that's power. Right. That's really, that's, yeah. that's really, that's a really funny argument. I, I think you're right, Thomas, and, 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 what, and what you guys are saying is that the people in that classroom, you're talking about the hypothetical classroom or the classroom you were in, Alex, those kids, they've never been asked that question. Thomas just said, like, why is slavery wrong? And 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 the and if they were asked that question, a lot of people who've just accepted what is culturally the norm now, they wouldn't be able to explain it. And some of the leftists wouldn't be able to explain it because they don't believe in individual sovereignty. So I don't, I, I think that, I think this is a great, I want to bookmark this in my notebook. This is a great question to ask. Another one, I, I like to collect the questions to stump SJWs. I think this might be one. Yeah, and I, I thought about that, but I, and I think the problem with them having goals, but no principles is even if you get them to get down to a point where they would say something about a principle regarding slavery, um, it wouldn't necessarily matter because since they have goals and not principles, they'll bypass a, what we call a principle in favor of that goal because the goal supersedes that principle. So that and that's why they can say, um, you know, that's why they can support someone like Ibram X. Kendi, who says discrimination is only bad if it is going in a certain direction where someone like me would say discrimination is a principle and any as long as we don't discriminate and as long as we have all these principles whatever comes of a society based on those principles is the best that we can hope for they're doing the opposite and saying i already know what it should look like so i'm going to do anything i can to make it look that way so you can't you can't get them because that you can't get them to even down to holding on to a principle because they're going to move it all over the place based on whatever they think is the right direction to go in that decade or in that year or in that week. Well, that's like the what they talk about in cynical theories, the ought mindset. The world ought to be this way. So anything and everything we can do to get it to that ought and make that a reality is justified. And obviously that's and that's not true from a uh, argumentative standpoint. Like if you look at things uh, from from the perspective of just going through an argument to prove something, that's not true. But it's also not true if you have principles. That's you know like and and the the phrase ends don't justify the means is, is still applicable. And then I have a problem with it because there ought is even bad. <laughs> it's not. 
it, like the ends aren't even even if you got these ends they wouldn't be justified because they they lack the value of civil liberties of individual sovereignty so it's like at the same time I, none of it makes sense to me this is why it's so frustrating to get into conversations with people who have never thought um because you know, Thomas, you've kind of opened up, you open up Pandora's box when you, you were kind of going, well, they'll say this, they'll do this. It's like, yeah. I mean, before you know it, you've got a four week philosophy class that they need to be, they need to understand what the hell reason is, how to not contradict, why they can't, why contradictions aren't allowed. But like, there's just, it gets, you might as well just walk away. Yeah, they actually embrace the contradictions. And I think um, in one of the opening chapters on Sowell's book on Marxism, he talks about contradictions contradictions in Marxism and how that's something that they actually embrace. And I don't, I don't remember exactly how it works. And I've heard that other places where the contradictions in themselves are part of their belief system. Right, right. And that's, yeah. that's because Marx, Marx is based on Hegel, which is, you know, uh, a version of Kant and like it all it all comes from this separation of reality versus what we can know as those being two separate things and it marches down this philosophic path so suddenly you get to a point where Marx can seriously say like yeah it's okay it's okay that there's a contradiction and the critical theorists can be like yeah that's okay there's a contradiction but contradictions are okay yeah. when you don't Lindsay, Lindsay talks about that a lot how James Lindsay uh, talks about mm-hmm. that a lot um, the dialectic and the you know, mm-hmm. um, I just want to sort of uh, mention about how, how Sol at the end he says about um, uh, the, the the moral versus uh, the causal thing, um, which uh, I thought was awesome. Um, you know, I listened to uh, Ben Shapiro, and uh, he 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 said this a lot. Uh, this very thing, uh, he's probably read a lot of Thomas Sowell that guy. Uh, he says um, uh, he doesn't call it a meritocracy because merit implies like a moral thing, which is exactly what Sol writes here. He says uh, he calls it a skillsocracy. Right? That's what Shapiro calls it. What what we should live in, or what a free market really is. Um, but uh, I did write something here that I want to ask. Uh, well, not ask. It's my comment. Um, uh, where was it? It was, uh, uh sorry, I don't need to, I mean, we're not, okay, go ahead, uh, sorry. Yeah, that's no, right. Uh, my quote was, uh, uh, it's on the, where he writes, nor is what is given likely to equal what the recipients could have created for themselves if the sources of productivity had been shared rather than the fruits, right? Like, the, like, oh, mm-hmm. like teach that, yes. and not just that, but the learning process. Uh, that's like sort of like the teacher man to fish thing. Um, I wrote, uh, uh, I'm not a poet, but I wrote, uh, knowledge is like a flame that grows stronger as it is shared. One's property in the, you know, free market sense, uh, the enlightenment sense, one's property is material, and any material grows weaker the wider it is distributed. So that's like my little stab at poetry, but. Uh, no, I like that. In fact, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna expand on that. I think knowledge is the flame and the, the, the material is, it, the, the wood 
is is the product in some weird way. It's like an inverse flame, right? Because that sharing the material, you get less and less. If you share your wood, you actually get less and less. But if you share your flame, uh, that can increase exponentially. It's kind of an inverse analogy because that's the opposite of how wood and flames work. It could, it could increase infinitely, not exponentially. So, yeah, sorry. Did I say exponentially? I meant infinitely. Yeah. 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 I, liked, I liked that about his point as well that uh it, again though you, you got to keep in mind that a lot of these these people they are this is a, the ultimate value inversion and the ultimate principle inversion they've inverted their political principles above any more fundamental philosophical ideas and their political principles involve redistribution of wealth um and and equality and that kind of outcome-based sense. And so uh, it's very easy for them to just be like, oh, well, yes, we should we should distribute these things. They're not thinking about, if you ask them, well, is this sustainable once these people have these things? Well, when they run out, then what happens? Like, how do we do this? That's not any, none of those questions enter, right? They're just, they take a snapshot of the world as it is today and fantasize about how rearranging objects in the world would make everyone equal. And then when you press play again after that, they don't care what happens after that. And it turns out it doesn't remain equal, of course, um, but they, they don't care. They, they just argue you have to take another snapshot and do it again. Karl Marx well, didn't care what happens after that. <laughs> right. didn't care. To me, to me, it's like a really good uh, equation to a movie that they probably all like and probably even agree with the villain in is Thanos and the snap. Like, if you look at po how population works, that makes no sense. Like, rationally, nothing about his idea made sense. And the idea that, oh, this one snap is going to fix it forever. It's like, no, that's not how things work. <laughs> and, you, you, and it's almost the same idea. Like, it, it's as flawed, the idea that, oh, I, I, we get there once, and that's it. Right, right. Because humans aren't static. <laughs> yeah. If we can get rolling back after five years, we'll also fix everything. That was in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Zato, I just yeah. want to jump in because Zato said something in the private chat, gave a great example. You said. Oh, well, the, the said, idea of just giving homes to the homeless will fix that issue. Yes. Right. That's a, that's a great illustration of, I think, what everyone's talking about. Um, Right. Well, just giving a free student loan forgiveness doing it's a band-aid to actual real serious problems that you know they need to solve but instead they were well we'll just put a slap a band-aid on it for now forgive everyone's student loans for now but not solve any of the things that led to them to led to such a huge chunk of the population having so much debt yeah it's also the right. same the thing isn't... in the education chapter it's where they it's also the same thing in the education chapter where the they're lowering standards and saying he 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 has a specific passage on this. It's like instead of addressing the reason why black students are not don't have the same test scores and figuring out why that is and correcting it, it's saying okay, well let's just continue this into college. Let's just get rid of the entrance requirements and then have you in college where again we gave you a fish, we didn't teach you how to fish, and so you're just perpetuating the problem over and over. It's a form of anti-intellectualism because it looks at the results and says that the problem is the results, not the problem is that you're not getting the results, right? So, like, 
if you look at the academic issue, like the problem isn't low test scores. It's that people are not getting high test scores. Like they're not doing something. Something's wrong with what they're doing because they're not getting the result. It's not the result that's wrong. It's the behavior that's wrong. Um, and, and the behavior and the behavior is discouraged. If you start to excel and do right. well, then your peers start to attack you and, and make fun of you for trying to emulate a different uh, a different type of person. So it's yeah. perpetuated. And so. you see this with lottery winners all the time. Often, lot, almost always, lottery winners go back to being destitute very quickly. Um, like if they win a million bucks or whatever. And it's because the problem wasn't that they didn't have a million bucks. It was that they don't know how to get a million bucks. It was that they, don't, they can't create that money on themselves. So they can't live up to the money. The money comes in, they spend it, it's gone, and they're back where they were before. Um, and if you want people to be able to get, if you want to give someone a million dollars, teach them how to make a million dollars, right? Then you can walk away and they can make a million dollars. Carter, it's even worse than that. I think I read about this once. I think it's the lottery winners. They don't just go back to being in the same state they were before. It like ruins them. In some yeah, some of them get much worse. Awful, yeah, and awful, it, and it ruins personal story. relationships and everything else. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, it reminds me also of what. Um, Keith was talking about when we were talking about actually letting slaves go, what then happens. Um, and it, that can be a tough thing to talk about because when you say something like, well, let just let them be free based on principle. You say free to do what? Oh, what you think they can't take care of themselves. You think they're just ignorant. They're dumb. They're this, that, the other. So it, it's hard to bring about that um, argument. And, and it's similar to saying, okay, well, why don't you just give people money? Oh, what do you think is going to happen when you give them money? They're going to spend it. They're going to waste it. Oh, so you don't think they're capable of this because they're lower than you. But it always reminds me of um, some, something Booker T. Washington said um, in his book. I think it's Up From Slavery is he was a little boy when slavery was abolished. So he's on a plantation. Some man comes to his uh, plantation and gathers up all the slaves and reads something from a piece of paper. And he, in retrospect, says, oh, it was probably the Emancipation Proclamation. And everyone was so jubilant. They were so happy. All of his aunts and uncles and other slaves that were now free, they were so excited. And they go back into their bunkhouse and they're just overjoyed with um, this declaration. But he says within hours, all of that happiness started to wane away. And it was like a dark cloud came over them. And he describes it as people were suddenly faced with the responsibility of freedom and his words that the Anglo-Saxon man has been wrestling with for hundreds of years. And I think that's what ends up happening is just like the lottery winners, it's not necessarily that you need to just give people something. You need to help them develop the human capital to be able to do it themselves. And I always keep that in the back of my mind when people, when I bring up that argument, it's like, well, if Booker T. Washington said it in the actual time that it was actually happening, it's probably okay to say it. There's probably a lot of truth to it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the quip, like, you, you right. can't cure poverty by giving poor people money. That that doesn't right. cure poverty. If, yeah. if anything, it makes it worse. Same thing with the homes. It's Zotto broke up. If you give homeless people homes, what does that do? It encourages more people to be homeless. So you, if you want to increase homelessness, 
give homeless people homes. That's economics like, 101. Is that real right. life? You see it everywhere. Well, you're saying, Tom, Thomas and, and Keith. But for example, look at the zoos, uh, zoos, right? When you have wild animals that are, that, well, that are raised in a zoo and they don't learn how to live like they would in the wild, you can't just let them loose because you've always given them everything so they don't know how to live. Right. And by then, it's probably very hard for them to do anything. So it's not to say that as humans, we can't do that. Obviously, we have to help people improve themselves. It's our responsibility if we cause them to have that issue. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up, Thomas. That was the point I was going to make about the context. Right. If you if you had slaves and you realize later that it's immoral, um, you have to also realize that the damage you did by taking responsibility away from them is your damage to fix right so you you can't just be like oh i'm i'm you're free now i mean i guess that's better than saying you're continuing to be my slave but but you have to understand like yeah but you did damage how do you fix that damage right and it's like oh well maybe maybe you have to say okay well i'm gonna we're gonna do some education you're free but i'm gonna give you also this free education and lodging for a while so that you understand how to go out in the world and i'm gonna i'm gonna help you because i took that away from you you would have learned that you know earlier in life and i took it away from you and now here you are you know unable to uh, walk in the world um if anyone saw the movie room with uh everyone's favorite actress brie larson uh yeah. she uh she played this woman who was uh, uh, she was kidnapped at 17. And in the movie, she's 24. She has a five-year-old son, lives in this room. The son's never left the room. Um, so she's been with the guy for like seven years or something. Uh, it was actually a very good movie. And, um, at, and then in the middle of the movie, she escapes. And she goes back to her family, and the guy's arrested. And then, like, not long after she escapes, she tries to commit suicide, right? So it's like... The, the first half of the movie, you're like, she, she could only get free. But then when she's free, you know, she needs serious therapy and serious help. Um, so it's not enough to just free her, you know. Like, uh, like you you know, it's not like you free her and it's happily ever after. And that's what I liked about the movie. It showed, hey, you know, people in traumatic and terrible situations, they need, that. It, 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 you know, it, it does a lot more damage than just, while they're locked up or while they're enslaved or while whatever. So, uh, you know, it's very true. It's a good, that's a good book too. That's one of the ones that sometimes we've talked about this when we do book club, but sometimes they make, I like the movie version of books. And that's one where I thought they did a really good job. Um, I just, can I jump in one second and, and, and read us, read some super chats. I just told people I'd find a chance to read them. There's only three. I'll fight you naked. Slavery was incompatible with the founding values of the country. People had to pretend that blacks were not really human. Racism is an excuse, not a reason. Yes, I think this is what Alex was getting was getting at was that people are justifying backwards to in order to do what they want to do. B. Allen, thank you, B. Allen says soul is not well received by the left, but you'd think that they'd welcome his explanations of why blacks are not inferior. No, because they believe blacks are inferior. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think, I'm starting to think that's true. Um, and then Alpha Unique says, in Africa and the Middle East, white slaves were high status symbols. See Barbary Pirate Wars. You got a tiger, I have a white Siberian tiger. 
his soul brought that up when he talked about worldwide slavery and like what slaves were in the Middle East. So like in the Persian Empire, uh, a lot of the slaves were women. They didn't use them for farming. Soul talked about a little bit. And uh, European women were a little more valuable than than African women. Um, and and that's just how it was. It's, they were vulnerable people. It wasn't based on race. And and if you start talking with the people that want to do the black-white racism thing as the basis of slavery, and now you bring up, okay, now we're talking about Persians and Europeans, and the Persians are slaving European girls. And I'm not using girls as slang for adult women. Um, like, like, that debunks the whole thing. Like, And there were more slaves there than in Georgia, right? Yeah, where did the word slave come from? You remember it's in the book. Slavic. Slavic. Yes. yes. It's short for right. Slavic because that's, that's where the they right were comes. the most popular galley slaves in the fourteen hundreds or something. I think that's where it comes from. What? Yeah, it's yeah. A, short so, for Slavic. But Sol wrote about the woman whose baby had her its head caved in, like as a father, that like oh, traumatized yeah. me to read that. I was like, Oh my god. Like you know, and it was so flippant, right? It was like just smash the baby's head and like, you're like, oh, my God. Like, right? Yeah, it's so hard long. to read about some of the brutality of even even recently. I mean, I probably there's some that still goes on in certain parts of the world today. But, I mean, how widespread the brutality was um, even just a few hundred years ago, like everywhere. Just, yeah, the stuff. There's another one right around, right around that spot. There's another one where I think he talks about. Uh, a woman who couldn't keep up and carry both things, and he did the one of the guys just took her baby and you know th th threw it on the rocks and killed it like in front of her because she couldn't carry the baby and other stuff. It's just um, we forget how brutal we have been to each other and how brutal life is to us. Um, it's very it has easy been. to other to use a leftist term, to other, other people. And, and the, the idea of individualism is so important. Like, so you don't smash babies on the ground. Like, right. it's amazing that that needs to be said. It's, it pisses me off. Really. <laughs> it, it wasn't as obvious then. Or, or they were looking at the force, so the British were going to commit force against the slave traders, right? If they got caught, they might be hung. Um, so they kill a baby. And they're killing a baby of some group that has no power, well, not much value to them. And they talk about the marching across the desert, you know, to, to ship to the Persian states and or the Arab areas that had slavery. And, you know, one out of three or four made it alive, you know. Yeah, yeah, and just the fact that most Africans enslaved in Africa remained in Africa as slaves. That really shifted yep. my thinking on the numbers there. And another thing that he talked about is um, a good question to ask is, and I think this is in reference to people talk about, oh, well, yeah, sure, everyone had slaves. But what happened in America was so much worse, and they have different names for it. They call it chattel slavery compared to everything else, where they try to create this dynamic where, oh, yeah, it, even though everyone had slaves, uh, America was worse because of A, B, and C. Um, and it, 
I don't know if he explicitly asked this question, but it, it was almost as if he said, okay, if America was so much worse than those other places, not to justify race, not to justify slavery at all. But then you have to ask, where are all those African slaves that were exported to other places? Where is the black community in the Middle East? Where is the black community anywhere else outside of the United States? So the only place that I see all these exported slaves that still are around today and actually survived in the long run is the United States. So that's another thing that's a bit peculiar. So if we treated everyone so if you're trying to create that dichotomy, I think that's another good question to ask of somebody that's trying to do so. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, I, so I agree with you, Thomas, but there's also this, I just, well, I'm sorry, one other, I agree with you. There's also this just kind of eye roll reaction that I have to that, which is like, really, we're going to quibble about levels of slavery now? Like that's, they your do. argument is going to be, we're going to quibble about levels of slavery? <laughs> That's hard for control, me to I'd say I'd say there are no black people in the Middle East, so there was no slavery there. What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. And <laughs> and if somebody does bring it up, you can you can explain the reason. The the reason there are very little black population left over from slavery is they castrated all the men slaves. Yeah. That's why the they imported so many slaves. The ones that survived, yeah, like half. What is some? He brought up the number: more I than half the like people one, that they castrated died from the procedure. Yeah, I think one out of three survived um, castration yeah, and that was the number. Mm -hmm. I was going to bring up: there are a couple places where slavery um, did lead to higher numbers of black population. One of them I know about is Brazil. Um, I had a friend that yeah. visited for a couple months last year, stayed with us. He's Brazilian. Uh, it's the second time he visited us. We we got into slavery one evening. He just laughed like you Americans are like, I, I can't believe what I hear people talk about a slavery like Brazil had like 10 times the number of slaves or something like that. He's like, you people are crazy here. I said, well, it's not it's not us. But Brazil has large, very integrated black and white population, a lot of mixed race and higher percentage black than the U.S. Oh, that's left over Brazil. from slavery. Oh, what? Soul mentions Brazil. Soul did. Yeah. yeah. He talked about that they and they didn't have a war to end it. It kind of faded for economic reasons. It's not a good way to run things. And they figured it out. Um, another place that been to a bunch of times, Bahamas and the Caribbean is high black population. Haiti, Dominican Republic. Um, That's true. Jamaica. Jamaica. There are a couple that I know of. But yeah, the Middle East, it's... It's a bad reason, but that is actually the reason. Yep. Well, there were. Oh, sorry. I was say there's there was something else uh, that I thought that um, was really important in the book. A theme that he brought up was the um, the middleman. What was it called? The, mi the middleman minority, and that whole pattern um, with not only the Jews, but the I think it was the Chinese boat people. There were the Gujarati in Africa um, and this whole dynamic of what happens to people who choose certain types of um, jobs, uh, you know, whether they're merchants or um, exchanging money or gaining wealth without producing anything. Um, I think that was a really interesting part and really helped me help open up my eyes to what those patterns are like. Um, with all these different peoples all over the world. And we see it with a lot of the, uh, especially being in LA, 
um, Korean shop owners in Los Angeles. That was um, that tension between Koreans and um, blacks in Los Angeles. Um, you know, it really opened my eyes to how that same pattern happens everywhere. And it's almost like predicting the future because you can see it happening right now. Yeah, thank um, you for bringing that up. That was one of my favorite uh, eye-opening parts as well, Thomas. I really, I'm glad he expounded upon that. And I don't know how everyone else felt about it, but I came away feeling a little bit depressed about the human race because I was like, oh, man, they're just... So basically every group is stupid enough to blame the middleman and then murder them or like mistreat them in some way because they're idiots. Like every group, no matter where they are, they're idiots and they don't get the middleman and use them as a scapegoat every time. Uh, that's pretty depressing. Well, I, I can tell you um, as a Jewish person, oh, as a white Jewish person, that... Uh, white passing. Yeah, white passing, yeah, that's right. Uh, the alt right doesn't accept me as white, but do that as a man. Uh, I, uh, uh, the Jews uh, became like tax collectors at first um, because they weren't allowed to do anything else. They weren't allowed to own property, and so they were, and they were forced to be the tax collectors because no one else wanted to be the tax collectors because everyone hated the tax collectors. So, and then they became like money changers and stuff from that. So uh, that's a bit of history. There's no point there. That's just. Uh, just I, I've actually yeah, seen that in the Magna Carta. So I read a lot about the Magna Carta a while ago, and they even have a whole paragraph in the Magna Carta. I think it was 1215 AD about what to do with Jews and the money that they and their, their property. So that seems to be a common theme throughout history. I like that this chapter followed um, the chapter Black Linux and White Liberals, which was basically a discussion of a culture that has not benefited groups of people, <laughs> whether you're talking about what he called crackers or you're talking about black the black community. It followed that chapter and it was I like the part where he was contrasting the success that you see in these in these um, middleman uh, groups as being family oriented. And there's this fabric of, of community and family that's pushing through the success of the group. And yes, I saw that when I lived in LA, Thomas, I saw that in the, the Korean community, you know, they would loan money to one another. They, if you, if you needed something, you, you would find it within the community rather than going to outside sources. And, and he, he contrasted that with, he said, you look at other cultures, for example, he said a lot of um, the success that we, we've seen in Irish Americans in the 1700s and, and then uh, with Black Americans in the, or, or Irish Americans in the 1800s and Black Americans in the 1900s were individual successes. So they would excel in like sports or music or some type of entertainment, but it wasn't really this closely knit community or, or family type of success. So I, I just appreciated him putting it after that first chapter because I thought, okay, I think he's trying to say, like, let's look at what works to lift everyone up, you know. He's also being Thomas Sowell about it, right, in that he's like, a little bit of economic literacy would stop all of this nonsense, right? Like, <laughs> right? like if you recognize, like, hey, these people are working harder than you and they are providing value, don't be a douche, uh, then, like, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be uh, vulnerable to accusations from because remember he talked about how it goes there's there's the middleman and there's the masses and the elite 
and the elite end up when the masses start getting upset, it's the the elite throw the middleman under the bus, right? Um, yes. Because the masses oh, yeah. have no economic literacy. They don't understand why the middleman does better than, than they're doing. Well, the thing that really bothers me about that is the, the accusation that they bring nothing to the table. And it's like, clearly they do because the access yeah. to goods that they increase is insane. By, and and that is a social good and they 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 bring down prices because of competition and everything it's like the accusation that they're not contributing is just so horrible to me because it's like just because it's not something you can directly see um and but honestly every time a middleman minority first comes in i feel like they make this a society better like well, they do. That's why they make money. Yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. They wouldn't they pay them if it wasn't better. Yeah. yeah. He brought this up. Oh, just quickly, he brought this up in the following chapter too, the Germans in history chapter, when he said, uh, he, moreover, it's not usually the masses of the people who most resent the more productive people in their midst. More commonly, it's the intelligentsia who may with sufficiently sustained efforts spread their own resentment to others, like to the masses. And it was like a callback to that chapter about all you need is this minority of elite to throw that middleman yeah. minority under the bus to the masses. And that was exactly right. what was illustrated in the Holdemore or in the Ukraine mm. in World War II, where blame the kulaks and then get rid of them and then nobody knew how to farm so then they starved worse <laughs> yeah i think he gave some other examples in in the eastern in eastern europe of like kicking jews out and then things going horribly after that uh i don't remember the other examples but yeah so who will make our shoes like after they kicked out yeah who will make our shoes yeah who will make our shoes that beforehand, like, it's like oh shit yeah <laughs> Sort of that happened in, uh, in Zimbabwe after Mugabe. He gave all the farms to his friends, and then, you know, they couldn't make anything. Um, I think yeah, that's happening in that's South the, Africa a little bit right now, that's too, right? The classic South Africa. Yeah, there was something like 25,000 farms when Mandela took over. Now there's like 2,000 left, and there's no food. <laughs> and they turn the farms over to people that know nothing about farming. And the reason that the Dutch farms took off in South Africa is because it's a very difficult place to farm. Um, and yeah, they, they do. It's another, I hear other stories like I, I hear one about like it's a common thing. They burn the trains like people have these riots and they burn the railroads and burn the trains. Then Monday morning, they're standing and they have this big protest because there's no trains. They want to go to work. They need money. <laughs> like, <where's> the <laughs> Well, the government should get new trains. Soon when the trains can't bring it. <laughs> when it comes to yeah. the whole giving the farms to the, the ethnic group or the group, you, the in-group you want to give it to, it's the same thing that he talks about in the education section where it's like, well, we have to have representation. And he never uses that word, but you know that's the, that's the basic of the argument. Like, we have to have our group in charge of it. Well, then we'll benefit and it's like, or you suck at it, and then no one benefits, mm -hmm. and and you can, and that's a bad reason to give it to someone. And we yeah. see the the reality of that so often that people give it to someone just because of, you know, some happenstance genetic factor, 
and then but not based on merit and then everything gets worse and that that's true in education that's true in the farming that's true in any kind of economic system it doesn't matter you if you give it to someone who doesn't know what they're doing just because of who they happen to be it's not going to improve anything you're gonna make things worse yeah, if you put if you put that, if you put race, whatever the criteria is, doesn't even matter. Religion, same problem. Race, same problem. If you put that as the number one criteria, then obviously success isn't your criteria. And what do you think is going to happen? And yeah, you see it in South Africa with the farms or the airline. What do you think happened to South African airlines when they implemented a rule that 80% of the employees have to be black? Airlines uh, falling apart. Like, uh, <laughs> like uh, that's... <laughs> Carter, I want to ask you a question as a as an anarchist, and I'm not trolling. I'm genuinely curious. No, it's okay. Um, in the beginning of the book, he talks about the you know black rednecks and white liberals, and he talks about these uh, regions in Scotland and, and Northern England that um, were you know they couldn't get a ruler, so they so it was essentially machismo and and that kind of thing where how people got ahead and they couldn't do anything. So, you know, how is, how would like a, a anarcho-capitalist not degenerate into that, you know? So I think this is very similar to the question of why should we free, how can we free the slaves? They don't know how to operate without our help. Um, it's, it's the, that's the parallel I'll draw, which is um, I don't, this is why I don't push on politics very often. I don't think any system is self-sustaining without a cultural and philosophic change in the, in a population. Like the population manifests its own philosophy, and so I would rather be in, in a monarchy full of individualists who held the king accountable and he knew they had some guillotines. Uh, like that would be better for all of us than a democracy with a bunch of social justice warriors. Um, like so, the, I don't view the system of government as primary. So when I say I'm an anarchist, I, my path to anarchy was, uh, okay, well, individual rights are what matter. Um, the, the government only has validity morally to the extent that it protects individual rights. So I very, very quickly went from like libertarian to, to, well, a government could exist. And these are the, by the way, these are the pro-government people I get along with most. The, the ones who say, well, government could exist, but they can't force anyone to pay taxes. Like they could exist through voluntary contributions. I would voluntarily contribute, even though I'm an anarchist, I would contribute to a government that only asked for money uh, and only asked, didn't force me, only asked, especially if I could earmark it and be like, yeah, this is to stop uh, nuclear missiles from hitting my city. I'll donate to that as much as, <laughs> much as possible. Uh, but I don't, I'm not going to donate to these other stuff, this other stuff that you want. So I, I went through that, um, which is kind of this uh, I would say most objectivists have this kind of like idealized sense of government in that sense where they think like, oh, we'll have a government like that where you they don't forcibly take from you. But you can uh, I think a lot of them also think you pay for courts or something is that like and that's how they get money. I'm not a super fan of that. Um, and then I went to that and then I went from there to like, well, why why do we need a mon like, well, then why do we need a monopoly there? Why does that have to happen? Like we could just we could just do this. If we got to that point, we could just do this without a government. So my, my shorter answer is no matter where you put those people from the highlands, the, the, I'm thinking of the rough and tumble, uh, 
article part of the part where they're like ripping people's ears off and gouging their eyes out. Like that's their that's their culture, right? No matter where you put that culture, that's the culture it's going to be. Um, and so that culture needs to be fixed before you start asking questions of like, well, how do we how do we organize? So, right? It's the it's so the culture that's the is, Yeah. So my question is, let's say you get your uh, your your you know that kind of uh, 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 social or communal kind of thing, right? What if it breaks, right? You say you have to fix it before you do that, but what if it breaks and the, and there's no, it's almost like postmodern. It's almost like self-sustaining, um, you know, we, we, well, I mean, I, other. yeah, I don't, I don't know that it, it's like saying, well, what if the government breaks? It did. Like, it did. look, we've, we've tried to write things down on paper and say the paper will force people to not do these bad things. Uh, that I, it doesn't work for long. Like it, it works and starts to degenerate. Like so, there's a counterbalancing, I, right, with the people electing the government. So I'm not saying I disagree with you. I'm I'm saying, certainly, there would be balancing in an. Well, but certainly there would be balancing in anarchic society as well, right? Like obviously there would be. I mean, and I'm a big fan of ostracism um, as a tool, and like so, yeah, there would be. I think we would end up with community rules in a very, very similar way. They wouldn't be a cop that can come shoot you, but it would be like, well, you know, if you agree, I mean, you can look at like silly examples. Like there's a Disney Florida, like uh, community right now, where if you buy a house, I've just been around for a while. If you buy a house, you've got to sign these HOA rules that are like, well, I can't have a pink car in the driveway and I have to have my hedges a certain way. And I don't know if Mickey Mouse has to be prominent. Who knows? I don't know what the rules are. But people buy houses and they live in that community because they want to live among other Disney fans. Um, and and, the, ha- and the, the deed has encumbrances. You can like all that can absolutely happen in an in, in anarchic society. I can be like, well, this is my this is the land. I'm going to sell houses. I don't want strip clubs in this land like the uh, encumbrances are going to happen. Um, and I think you would end up with something very similar to a decentralized small government. It would look very similar, right? It would look very similar. The only difference is you wouldn't have, um, you know, you wouldn't have the initiation of force. Like someone couldn't be like, oh, I've decided now the new rule is everyone has to teach CRT in schools or whatever. I'm like, okay, well, no one could do that. Um, but I don't. I don't think anarchy is the question. I think the question is philosophy and culture. And if we get there, um, my like my fantasy of how humans could go if we solve our philosophical problems, we end up with we end up raising kids better so that we things don't fall apart. Um, we get some stability in our culture that's rational. Uh, I think the government naturally starts to fall apart at that point. I think it's like people are like, oh, well, we don't need this. We don't need that. And it just shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And there's a limit to that shrinking and eventually it hits zero. Uh, I just want to say that in the private chat, you guys are cracking me up. Thomas says we should have a, sh- we should have a shunning document. <laughs> and and uh, Joe says a shunning- narcissism every year. A shunning document when we form this new. It made me think of place. Dwight from The Office. If anyone just gets on your nerves, shun. Shun. And yeah, well, I mean, every year, that's like how, ancient Greece. The people that, that that's how people actually have operated for a long time. Like that's how community norms. All this like hemming and hawing about. A lot of conservatives are like, oh. 
people are doing these things wrong sexually and they're doing this and this is the problem and people have no morals and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, because it used to be self-policed, not with guns, not with laws, but you used to shun people when they misbehaved and you stopped doing that. So cut it out. If you don't like that behavior, start ostracizing them for that behavior. Start telling them you don't like it. You're not going to have barbecues with them. You're not going to be accepting because you don't like the behavior. If that's what you want, go do that. Stop asking for laws and men with guns to come in and enforce what you want. That's the problem. And we, the government has convinced everyone that whatever behavior you want, you got to go through big daddy government because he'll bring in the big guns and force everyone to do it. And that's dangerous. So, so, so my, Isn't that what cancel culture is, though? Absolutely. No. No, no. no. I, no this is what I, this, okay, but this is what uh, Carter, just a second. Carrie, you I think cancel oh. culture. Okay. She was accusing me of cancer culture. I was just responding, but go ahead. No, I mean you're jumping right in. Like, anyway, I was gonna say I I know you're about to disagree. I think cancel culture is different than ostracization. I do because what I've seen happening in cancel culture is that. People, it's they go beyond saying, I'm not going to shop at your coffee shop because I don't agree with your policy on XYZ. They say, I'm also going to defame you, spread lies, and I'm going to try and get your coffee shop canceled. That's the one distinction I would make between the two. Maybe you don't see that distinction, Carter. I, I don't think I think there's uh, the difference between ostracism and cancel culture is a difference in degree, not kind. So um, I, I just want to say, sure. uh, based on the definitions, care definition straight. Malcolm Gladwell, uh, one of his books, I forget which, uh, he writes about communities and how if you get over 150 people, you you start to feel lost in the system. Um, uh, and he mentions how businesses should divide and try to keep 150 people max in each, uh, you know, location of their of their corporation, um, so that people feel uh, value valued and like their work is, you know, contributing to something. So I think like when you talk about people want want to, are going to contribute, I think it's human nature that if it's that magic number, let's say 150 people, then people will contribute because they feel like they're part of the community, but more than that, um, people will feel like their contributions don't matter and they'll become apathetic. And uh, that's, you know, so I think uh, if you talk about like ostracization, you know, you have to have a very small community for like in a church, like a church in a small town or something uh, for that to feel, you know, for that to feel like something, um, which is why cancel culture is stupid because it's just mobs and nobody feels like they're part of a community. So. Well, so this is why this is why I'm saying it's a difference in degree, not kind. And I I think the the when I look at cancel culture, the problems with it are not that people are willing to ostracize other people for bad behavior. That's not the fundamental problem with it. The fundamental problem with it is a they're not thinking at all. They are like reacting emotionally to some virtue signal that Carrie needs to be canceled or Manny needs to be canceled or some without having any of their own actual thought about it. And, and if they do, their thought is wrong because they have like evil ideology to start with. So like either they're just sheep following and they're, they've got a mob mentality or they're, they're applying really bad ideas and they're canceling people for things that ought not be canceled. So I think it's the ostracism is a tool just like anything else. 
And if the the input that you put into this tool, if the motivations are, I'm I'm going to run this tool as a zombie who looks at leftist craziness and amplifies that, and that's how I'm going to use ostracism. Yeah, you're doing you're doing something wrong. It's not good, and I, and we call that cancel culture. Um, and you, and they do it as Kerry pointed out. They do it to a very great degree. Right. It's like I'm not just going to boycott this thing. I'm also going to try and make sure that you can't go to that thing and whatever. Like they they do it. So they do it to a, a crazy degree and they do it um, irrationally. But fundamentally, I still think it's just a difference in degree, not a difference in kind, because ostracism is a tool. And if if all these people were it's a valid tool. And if Twitter was full of people who were thinking rational thinking individuals and people like uh, Jelaine Maxwell were on Twitter, and everyone's like, "I don't. We all hate you, and we've looked at what you've done. We all don't want anything to do with you. Like, and, and we're going to harass you and harangue you." And Twitter even was like, "You know what? We don't want you on. All right, like, it's a private business. I mean, it depends on what Twitter's goal is and what they are, what they're explicitly said they'll do. So, um, but there's not." I think we have to be careful in saying you have to let everyone do whatever you have to associate with them or you have to be quiet about it or you have to not criticize or not ostracize. It's absolutely appropriate to ostracize, but you have a personal responsibility to know why you're doing it and and to do it in a responsible way, not to just jump on some bandwagon because someone tweets out that so-and-so ought to be canceled. Yeah, it reminds me of a lot of the other stuff that, is happening in that world where it's it's not only that I am free to have my idea about the world or a business, but you must also share in that idea. And if you don't, then you'll be ostracized. So you will have to ostracize or else you'll be ostracized. And so I do see the utility in some ostracization, but it should be as an example to where I say I disagree with them. So I'm not going to um, shop at that store. And that is the example that I'm setting. If I, if you see my example and you agree with it and you want to join and do the same thing, that's fantastic. But I'm not going to force other people to do that. I mean, I think it's, it rests on the difference between forcing other people to do that ostracization as opposed to leading by an example and welcome welcoming people along with that example if they so choose on their own volition. Yeah, cancel culture has an ostracism for not ostracizing addition to it, right? Which is which is like an extra level of crazy, right? Which I can't think of a valid reason to be doing that, but like maybe maybe there would be one like I just can't think of it, but there's it's I'm ostracizing this person and I'm ostracizing you if you don't ostracize that person. Like that, that's oh, it's, a, it's totally that's valid a reason if you have goals and no principles. Yeah, fair, fair. <laughs> sort of like, sort of like how like some people are apologists for the uh, the pedophilia like apologists, and you're like, no, 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 no. We don't need to apologize right. for the people who are apologizing for this. Like I, you know, like maybe that <laughs> right. would be an example. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, um, you know, you're seeing cancel culture and accountability is uh, accountability would be like if you had an accountant at a, at a firm and he's cooking the books and you're like, stop cooking the books. 
you're you're fired, right? Versus a, a cop who does twenty five dollars to Kyle Rittenhouse's fund, and then he gets fired, <laughs> anonymously, right. and then he gets fired. right. So, right. That, you know, it's like the, that is a big difference between cancel culture and accountability. Yeah, and the fundamental problem is we've got a large percentage of the population, as Carrie, you've mentioned, this came from Jordan Peterson, this idea that like people are speaking stuff that they haven't thought about, right? Um, we've got a large percent of the population willing to go burn the witch because because their neighbor says to go burn the witch. And that's fundamentally the problem is not that they have this ostracism tool. It's that if you give kindergartners guns, massacre will happen even if they don't even intend for massacre to happen because it's it's a tool that's like they're they're not responsible enough to use the firearms like you don't give you know that's why you don't give kindergartens firearms so we have a population who is irresponsible to the point of can't i mean many of them are irresponsible enough that they can't even sustain themselves without assistance but they're definitely irresponsible enough that they can't function on Twitter without coddling and rules and they are totally irresponsible with respect to applying ostracism. So yeah, w- this is a bloodbath and they're pointing this weapon of ostracism around and firing willy nilly, but it's because they're, it's fundamentally not the weapon's fault. It's that they're irresponsible. I think I Carter just, just I, presented I, the best argument for gun control I've ever heard. <laughs> I was just thinking, I was like, wait a minute, isn't that the same kind of way you could talk about guns? And I was like, I, I don't know that I want to go there. <laughs> I just, I just people are kindergartners. People have the responsibility of kindergartners and shouldn't give kindergartners guns. The right, trouble the problem is that, that, is, might be that right. it, <laughs> Yeah, it, it might be right, but it includes the kindergartners. It, that includes the people that would enforce gun control. So... It falls apart yeah, with the, respect to gun control. The, so the, the counter is the one that I've used before with that is, sorry, Carrie. Um, I just want to finish that topic. But but if you think that everybody's a kindergartner and it's the whole culture, all we're talking about, the problem is that all the people in government are also kindergartners. Right. Go sorry. ahead, Carrie. Sorry. Uh, so to bring this back to the book, I was just going to ask if there is any final chapter any chapters we didn't get to talk about we're we kind of been going for two hours so um oh, wow, i yeah. did want to talk about the german chapter a little bit but uh in the interest of time i think uh, if anybody wants if there's something important you want to hit on that we haven't touched on i, I was going to bring up one thing and we don't have to get into it i'm curious what other people think that when he talked about the the source of the you know what is now the inner city black ghetto culture and some parts of that, um, the whole bit, responsible, not one to work, responsible, uh, that that came from the Irish Highlands and Wales and that went into the South and became the Southern redneck and the cracker culture. Like that was really interesting. It was eye opening to me following that through. But I think there's a couple things about that that I didn't agree with. And maybe it's my modern perspective. I live in South Florida. Like, Cracker is a thing here, the cracker culture, but cracker is like people that were ranchers and farmers. It's kind of like the self-sufficient people that live in the center of the state in the middle of nowhere. And yeah, there's a lot of junk around their house and they every vehicle they ever owned is still in the backyard, but they do entirely take care of themselves. Like, like personal responsibility is huge. Um, they're the kind of people that would stop at two in the morning to help you fix the tire. Like, that's what I think of the cracker culture. And I grew up in South Jersey. Rednecks were a thing in deep South Jersey. And they're kind of that same people. 
they're very much responsible. I bet that, that term I, I didn't evolves. Like follow all that. Yeah. I, I think in the book he's talking more about that was a term of uh, pernition or, or derogatory in England in that area, uh, what they called people then. N not so much. And then it just came with the culture to the United States. Yeah, I think I think more of like the uh, the wonderful whites of what was that that movie, um, the people of the Appalachians. I think more of that, um, and I think there's probably some overlap with what we call rednecks now. Like I have redneck friends that I've had throughout the years living in the South that are exactly like what you say, Keith. Um, they're not, you know, they, they still have part of that culture, and they have the cars, and they have the junk, and they have you know, deer drying from the shed. Um, but, you know, they're, they're also working people and they've got their jobs. So I think there's a, there's a, a mix of that. And sometimes kind of like with the black community where you take a term of derision and kind of make it your own and throw it back at people, um, almost like what Jeff Foxworthy does a little bit as well. I think that what he's talking about with cracker culture and the very lowest end of that totem pole within that culture sometimes gets that word gets adopted as a badge of honor as well for people who it doesn't totally apply to it's a newer use of the word in other words i also yeah. the thing i found interesting about that is that he goes on about this the scottish people and how they were a lot like that including the word axe for ass that pronunciation i was like holy crap that's insane but, um, and the fact that the Scottish people overcame that culture, like Carter was talking about a culture change and they completely change. They became like these paragons of education and intelligence and, and the fact, and that that should be something that gives everyone a little bit of hope about any culture that you could just like aspire like as an entire, you know, huge swath of people to better yourselves and he talked about it from being a little cringy about your culture now like you're not going to if you don't cringe over how things are bad you won't Im improve them and I, I think that that's why he's he talks about the problem of acting as though people shouldn't have to change their behavior or their culture to to better their culture in themselves is that it's like you have you cannot improve without looking back and cringing. You're you're never going to. But it's also actually very inspiring to see that that it happened, you know, to to so many people. I think that's that's great news. Yeah, and I think that, that ties into what Carrie was saying, you know, about the German chapter to where we can easily look at a culture like the German culture and say, oh, look at all these great things they did and attribute it to their culture. So we're, it's very easy for us to attribute good things to people if it's part of their culture, but we don't want to say culture can also be something that might be negative. So if it can be good, that it has to be that it can also have negative aspects. You can't have it both ways. Um, and, you know, I, I do, you know, I, I think that that's a great way to say, let's actually look at the problem because there is something to be said. And the Scottish example is a wonderful way to say it can be turned around and there's a lot of hope and you can actually do some things and make things a whole lot better. And nobody invested in them or gave them, you know, tons of money or anything like that. It was developing individual human capital. Yep.
Yep. I think that's a good way to end it. I don't know where Carrie is. Beverly, do you know where Carrie went? I don't see her in the... And there she is. Carrie, is there anything else? Or, I mean, we've been going for a while. It seems like it might be a, that might be a good spot to wrap it up and and wish people happy. Yeah, thank you guys so much for joining us. And thank you for everybody who's in the chat hanging out. And our next book is Punishment um, by Dois Suez. You can say it, Carter. <laughs> and you got it. It's good. That's <laughs> enough. Yeah. Uh, so have a good have a good Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Uh, and we will return next year. We're taking some time off. Take some time off yourselves. Go do your thank you, everybody. And and stuff. Thank and, you yeah. guys. Thanks. Cool. Bye. 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 Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by Dr. Fauci. All praise be to his name. The following co-conspirators have been asking too many questions. You know what to do. Once the Maxwell trial is over, we promise there will be no more pedophiles among the ruling class. Just one more job to combat the Zeta variant. Oops I mean the Omicron variant. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.